Hello, I'm Paco Alvarez, and this is The Backstory from Type Investigations, where we sit down with one of our reporters and ask them to take us behind the scenes of their work. Type Investigations reporting fellow Adam Fetterman has spent the last few years reporting on government policy on oil and gas development on public lands, particularly how it's affected the Arctic. For his latest piece, The Big Thaw, produced in partnership with Sierra Magazine, Adam traveled to Alaska and spoke to scientists and residents about the slow disaster of climate change-induced permafrost thaw and how it's already affecting life in Alaska. In this conversation, we discuss how he started reporting on the government's role in fossil fuel development, the importance of emphasizing the human impacts of climate change, and the difficulty of communicating complex science. So a lot of your reporting in the past few years has been about the Department of the Interior and its role in facilitating the expansion of the oil and gas industry on public lands, especially in the Arctic. How did you start reporting on the Interior Department? It was sort of an interesting evolution. I didn't have any experience covering a federal agency before 2017, and it was after Trump was elected. And we sort of realized and knew that there was going to be a significant shift in the approach to public land management, especially as it relates to oil and gas development. So Interior is an interesting agency because it's composed of many different bureaus, each with its own mandate and mission um, from the National Park Service and Fish and Wildlife Service to Bureau of Land Management, which is the agency that oversees oil and gas development on shore. So it was really with type investigations, basically strategizing about how to approach what we knew was going to be a significant shift to some extent in policy related to oil and gas development on public lands. So that was that was the beginning. You often investigate both the policy changes and the impacts they have on people on the ground. How have you gone about developing sources both within the government and in the communities directly affected by those changes? Yeah, I mean, it was a steep learning curve for me because, as I said, I hadn't covered a federal agency and I didn't have any kind of a blueprint in terms of how you go about cultivating sources. I mean, I think the obvious way and the way that I sort of approached it was to find um, individuals who had served in the agency under the previous administration or who had uh, retired and to kind of start there and then figure out how I could find and approach people who were, you know, still working at the department. And over time, that was effective. And I was able to to find different, I mean, as I mentioned before, DOI is strange in some ways, because it is composed of these bureaus with very different missions and mandates. So in terms of cultivating sources, you really do have to cast a wide net. And each agency has its own culture. I've done a lot of reporting, for example, on the U.S. Geological Survey, which is very much a, a sort of a pure for lack of a better word, science agency that doesn't really get involved in policymaking. But under the Trump administration, with the amount of interference in science and climate science in particular, U.S. Geological Survey became sort of hugely politicized. And there was a a lot of dissatisfaction within the agency. So uh, a number of people ended up communicating with me. And a lot of my reporting focused on what was happening there at the agency. But as you mentioned, these stories are always connected to issues that affect people's lives. So in some ways, that's easier in the sense that you're on the ground and and you find people in these places who are being impacted by oil and gas development. Or I did a story uh, on a proposed lithium mine in Nevada, for example, and traveled there to do the reporting for that story. So 
you you ultimately just have to find the people who are you know usually active in in either opposing or in some cases you know promoting these development projects and and sort of take it from there and what was it like covering these issues during the trump administration and has it been different since biden took office yeah it's a good question i mean it, in a lot of ways under trump it was pretty exciting on the one hand, because things were moving so quickly and the stakes were high. I mean, for example, with the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, it was a high priority for the Department of the Interior. And the refuge was open to development through the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was passed in 2017. So it was like right out of the gate, they were determined to get this done. And um, this is an area that's been contested for four decades and protected. So covering that in real time and and, and trying to get the story out, which was uh, how the administration was handling the environmental review process was, you know, was fast paced and it was uh, was compelling. And it also felt like it could potentially make a difference. Yeah, things are quite different. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's harder to get information out of the department now. I think the Biden administration is much more disciplined and and tight-lipped, and it's harder to find people who have access to information that that I'm interested in, for example, Uh, especially as it relates to oil and gas leasing, which is, you know, still a a huge uh, issue and, and an area where things have not perhaps changed as much as people might have hoped or expected with the change in administrations. Your newest story is about the slow disaster of thawing permafrost in the Arctic, and especially how it's affecting Alaska and the Alaska native population. Uh, How did you first become aware of the problems permafrost thaw is causing in Alaska? So, you know, most of Alaska is on permafrost, which is something I didn't quite appreciate, even though it's in the Arctic. But, you know, something like 80 to 85 percent of the state is actually on top of permafrost. And... I think just paying attention to environmental issues in Alaska, it's something that comes up a lot, both in terms of uh, how it affects everyday life from, you know, whether your house might be sinking or collapsing because of thawing permafrost or in terms of bigger picture questions like how is thawing permafrost going to ultimately impact future warming with, uh, you know, the emissions that are going to come with thawing permafrost. So, I mean, that's not a very satisfactory answer, but I, I think it was just something that was sort of in the back of my mind. Uh, something I'd been paying attention to at a distance and and realized that it often gets talked about in somewhat abstract terms. Is there a, a, a carbon bomb that's going to go off as permafrost thaws or, you know, the Arctic is warming two to three times faster than the rest of the planet. We've got wildfires raging in Siberia and, and record temperatures, et cetera. But I, I felt like the way the issue was being presented, you know, in the mainstream media didn't usually connect those threads to people who uh, who live in the region. And, and, you know, the Arctic, of course, is remote and it is sparsely populated, but you've still got uh, millions of people living in towns and cities scattered across this vast region. So I think my hope was to try to connect those dots. And um, related to that, uh, I feel like, yeah, your story does a great job of balancing the the sciencey aspects of um, climate change induced permafrost thaw and the human aspects that like are already happening in Alaska. So you you ended up traveling to the Alaska native village of Selawik and speaking to residents there. 
Why did you pick Selawick and were people in Selawick open to speaking with you? Yeah, Selawick was not a place that I had heard of until I started talking to some of the permafrost researchers in the early sort of early days of reporting the story. Uh, and one in particular um, guy named Tor Jorgensen, who used to be a professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and has, and has done a lot of, of work on permafrost uh, in Alaska, mentioned Selawick to me. It's a a small, relatively small village in the northwestern part of Alaska, relatively close to the Chukchi Sea. Uh, so it is impacted by the increasing uh, a melting of, of, of sea ice. And it's also on, on permafrost. So it's dealing with all of the, the related impacts. And it's also a place that has gotten a certain amount of attention from other public health researchers and scholars interested in this question. So um, almost 10 years ago, there was a, a very comprehensive, well-done uh, report on the impacts of climate change in Selawick. So part of the reason why I wanted to focus my reporting there was that I, I knew that there was there was an understanding of the issue in this particular place and, and, and sort of a baseline against which I could measure whether anything has, well, how much things have changed basically since this this report came out raising the alarm about the impacts of thaw in Selawick and and suggested that the village could even become sort of a model for addressing um, impacts of climate change in the Arctic. So it seemed like for all of those reasons, like a, a place that that would be worth revisiting. And to your second question, I mean, the people there were just uh, hugely open to talking about the issue and, and, and other uh, other related um, elements. So we we arrived and it was it was June and uh, the place is it's accessible only by by aircraft so there are no roads actually in the village they have a rather extraordinary maze of of, of uh, elevated boardwalks that that people ride around on ATVs on to get from one place to another and that's because of the fact that it's on permafrost I mean you can't build paved roads in a place where uh, the ground is is going to be sinking. It's a remarkable place and I think a sort of an excellent example of what's happening and, and what we're going to see more of across Alaska and, and, and uh, the Arctic more broadly. So you also spoke to like a lot of scientists about their research into the effects of permafrost thaw. Uh, how did you make those connections and how do you think about the challenge of presenting complicated scientific information in a way that's compelling and accessible to a general audience? I mean, it's a pretty tight knit community, I would say, of researchers. So once you make contact with a couple the introduction is there to many others. I mean, I, I should add though that I was focusing on Alaska and the Arctic is a big place. And I don't want to I don't want to pretend that I covered the whole region because Siberia, for example, I think makes up about 70% of the Arctic landmass. And you know, there are a handful of, of Russian scientists at University of Alaska Fairbanks, including one of the leading permafrost researchers, um, Vladimir Romanovsky. So they're very familiar with the bigger picture of course, and eager to talk about it because they want this information out there. They want to be able to communicate with the public about what's happening. Absolutely. And I think that they are now, you know, the researchers that I spoke with recognizing that the changes that are coming and, and sort of already in motion are going to be much more significant perhaps than they anticipated, especially as it relates to impacts on infrastructure and um, sort of everyday life. Yeah. And then the second part of the question. I mean, that's something that I think all journalists who write about complex scientific issues have to figure out how to tell the story without obviously 
getting sucked into the minutiae and the um, jargon that goes along with it. So that just takes time and and uh, obviously finding the storyline. Um, I mean, one part of the another part of the Selowick story that I was drawn to was um, the fact that there was this massive, they call it a thaw slump, where a huge chunk of basically the riverbank collapsed uh, in the early 2000s, 2004, 2005. And this was upriver 170 miles or so, but had a had an impact both on 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 the ecosystem, on the water quality in the village, et cetera. And and this phenomenon is increasingly common across the Arctic, these massive thaw events. So finding those elements that are going to be both compelling and also help you tell the the story through the science, um, you know, that was sort of something that I was thinking about as I reported the reported the piece. And so my last question is, uh, what was the biggest challenge you encountered while reporting the story? I mean, in some ways it relates to what you just asked about how to communicate the complexity of something like this. I mean, permafrost thaw is just, I mean, understanding how it works or what's happening. Part of the challenge is actually that a lot of the questions remain unanswered. I did do a sidebar piece uh, with this story on the question of methane emissions and CO2 emissions from thaw, which is something that scientists are uh, scrambling to better understand right now, because obviously it it will have an impact on uh, future warming. So you're dealing both with questions that that scientists have not yet been able to answer and also with a set of issues that's highly complex. So I think that that probably was the greatest challenge other than getting out to uh, Alaska during uh, a pandemic and all the rest. You can read Adam's article, The Big Thaw, at sierraclub.org slash sierra or at the Type Investigations website. Check our show notes for links to more of Adam's work. A transcript of this backstory is available at typeinvestigations.org slash backstory. 